Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, this is Pete Bauer. And I'm Dorothea Bauer. And this is what? My Name is Not Steve. That's a good good call. We are storytellers who talk about storytelling. Um, to prove that my name is not Steve, so that's that derives from the fact that people kept calling me Steve mm-hmm. growing up. So I was and people a, call me whatever they really want to, yeah. but it's never my name. That's true. So I was at work, and I was meeting this new person, and I said, hi, my name is Pete. And she said, meet? <laughs> and I was like, no. Um. How do you even get that wrong? <laughs> that's not... No. I'm like, no. And as soon as I said no, she's like, why would I say that? <laughs> I'm like, because that's what people say. A new name that I've gotten recently is Dorothea. <laughs> and um, That's a planet, isn't it? In a, in a faraway <laughs> galaxy. Well, they'll look at me and go, oh, Dorothea. And I'm like, does it really sound like it's Dorothea? Does that, does that sound like a name that I would have? Well, uh, Dorothea, we're talking about um, some things today. Now, here's the cool thing. Uh, one of our three listeners actually emailed us with a suggestion, a topic, which we're going to address not this time, but next time, because we need to do a little research in that particular area. But it's kind of cool to get a suggestion. It is. It's awesome. Thank you. I do love that listener. A I lot, do. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. She's kind of sweet. She is. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that was really nice. So we are gonna we are gonna do that. I actually have a very sweet story about that particular listener. Do you I want to name her or keep her anonymous. I'm going to keep her anonymous because it'll work better with the story. All right. I, as everyone who listens to this or knows me personally knows, I am a very private person. So... No. (laughs) When did this start? Oh, wait, at birth. I was staying at her house this past week, and uh, she was explaining to me the five love languages. She was teaching me about them, and I'd never really heard of this before. The languages of love? Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes. And she said, there's a free test that you can take online. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And she's explaining it to me, and it was really fascinating to learn. But she pulls out her computer and starts filling out information and says, I know you're not going to fill this out, so I'll do it for you. Puts down <laughs> her name, her email address, and then presses submit and hands me the computer to take the quiz. And you were everything you expected to be? <laughs> I was, but I was also very delayed in taking that quiz because I was like crying with laughter for... <laughs> A good minute and a half. It was very sweet. That is. That is love right there. I didn't even need to take the quiz. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what language that is. (laughs) Understanding? It's not one of them, but it was. (laughs) We've just added a new language of love. We've just added a new language. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Let me give you an update, I guess, on what's going on with the Gabby Wells stuff. So I got the finished manuscript, Lost and Found from my editor. And so that's cool. It's all done and done. So then I started to put it into the final like ebook format and the final paperback format. And I'd kind of forgotten how I did all that before. (laughs) (laughs) So there was some wasted time in there. I was just surprised how I remember it being really easy. I just (laughs) didn't remember how to get to easy. Mm. I eventually did though. It was, it was ended up being easy. it was hard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was easy right after it was hard. <laughs> so anyway, I got that done, which is good. Um, you're finishing up our internal edit for Sins and Suicide. I am. I would have finished it by now, but I was pretty much living at work the past week. So. You? Yeah. No. I know. 
man, you're full of surprises. <laughs> Your behavior is so different from week to week. I know. It's bad. Interesting. But in my defense, this was the really? busiest. Yeah. No, I have to. This was the busiest time of year for the company. Well, at least for my department in the company. So yeah. All right. I wasn't the only one at the office until very late at night. That sounds like a good defense, I guess. <laughs> We're all unhealthy. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the everybody's doing it argument. It's yeah. completely without merit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're all going down in flames, but we're all going down together. I had posted online to a picture of my blank whiteboard, mm-hmm. and that was where I was <laughs> with the fourth <laughs> book. And it's so weird because I always knew that the fourth book was going to be based on a movie script I had written before. So I thought, well, this will be an easy thing to do, right? I'll just read the script, and then I'll just siphon off everything that's applicable to Gabby and just throw her in that world and go, right? Well, it should be fairly easy since both of the main characters are based on me. So <laughs> <laughs> That's because you were wanted to be an actress back then, and so I wrote them to be you. I know. It was very sweet. It's not because I'm an original. There's a lot of other <laughs> characters that aren't like you in this world. Anyway, I read the screenplay. And I'm like, oh, this is cool, except that only like 30% of it can actually apply. And it's a different 30% than actually is in the, I mean, it's, it's hard to explain. It's not a one-to-one, right? You kind of take the original premise and then you have to Gabbyize it. That's why that whiteboard remained blank for a long time because I'm like, how do I Gabbyize this thing? And it was only when, surprisingly, I had a conversation with you <laughs> <laughs> because that's what happens when I'm stuck. I call you. And we sat down and kind of made it really, really simple. And, and to me, we've talked about this before, but I need things to be really simple story-wise. They just, that's the way it works for me. If it's too convoluted in my head, I don't know where to go. But I just d- because it's simple, that doesn't mean that it's uninteresting or boring. Because if you look at the plot for Mission Impossible 3, it's a very simple plot. But something happens in that script every five minutes. Right. We actually went through and paused the movie every five minutes and saw... Oh, this is where this changed, and this is where this changed. Major, major. I love that. I I would love to write... I'm going to have to write a book with that premise of, like, every two chapters having a major event occur to switch it around, because that's what MI3 did. It was pretty amazing. Father Bill at Mass today, in his homily, literally said the phrase, your mission, should you choose to accept it, seriously, about accepting your plan, God's plan for your life. Oh, what self-destructs when he's done? <laughs> Did the Bible like burst into flames when he was done? No. Well, that's good because that would be a downer yeah. to the whole premise. <laughs> anyway, so I talked to you and like I've said, I, I need the, the plot, I guess the direction, the path to be very simple. Where you're heading is simply understood, but how you get there is not. And so that is what I needed your help kind of fleshing out. And now that I have that, I've started to work on it. I, I'm kind of finding out the uh, how to put it together. And what's interesting for me is that I still use the screenplay paradigm to flesh out even my novels because my brain has been trained that way. And I don't, I don't think I need to retrain my brain for novel writing for that because in the in the really basic component of screenwriting paradigm, it's a beginning, middle, and end, right? Yeah. And you have major plot points which thrust the character from one. One section, the beginning to the middle to the end, and that that exists in every story. The formulas are very similar. The terminology is different. Right, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of where we are. I'm starting to write uh, the fourth book, Gods and Martyrs, and I'm still struggling, though. Actually, I haven't, I've been struggling a little bit because I know how I want it to open, but I haven't, don't have clarity. Again, the straight line, I don't have that uh, in the opening. 
So I have to figure that out before I can actually just bang out the opening and then jump into the story that I'm, I'm more familiar with. So, Because every Gabby Wells novel needs to open with some sort of interesting... In, in screenplay. <laughs> there we go. I was waiting for you yeah. to bring it up. In screenplays? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, if you, for anyone who listens to this podcast, you burst into laughter far before you should because you know... You know me so well that I'll bring up something and you'll start laughing before I even tell the story. Anyway. Well, I know what you're thinking. So in movies... Quick story before you talk about something informative and actually interesting. Oh, okay. Let's slow this down. (laughs) There was one time we were getting lunch together and I saw a mound of dirt outside at a construction site. Yes. And I was like, hey, dad, look at that. It's the kind of thing that when you were a kid, you would ride your bike up and play on that construction site. And you just looked at me with like slight annoyance and frustration and almost incredulous because you looked at me and you're like that's not your memory (laughs) stay out of my head (laughs) yeah you should be creating your own memories you shouldn't be uh, siphoning mine i can do both (laughs) (laughs) anyway in movies um studies have shown that most moviegoers decide whether they like a movie after 10 minutes within 10 minutes so that's why the opening of a movie is really important. So I'm using that same model with these novels. Is the, the opening has to be kind of cool and um, interesting, and then that propels the reader through the rest of the novel. So in the fourth book, I know kind of what I want to do. I just really haven't figured out enough of the details to, to make it coalesce in my mind and so I can move forward. And it's interesting having to set that up in different mediums because a lot of films open up with something very visually stunning at the very beginning and then they go into the plot and then you have that introduction. And it's interesting to have to do that in books because you and I have all of these ideas and we'll be like, oh, this would be cool. Oh, this would be cool. If it were a movie, it would be awesome. I know. (laughs) We were talking on the phone just last week and I said, I had this really cool idea, but it won't work because it's a movie idea. I said, because in a movie... This would happen. And then you'd see this reaction. Yes. And we that have would... so many reaction shot moments yeah, yeah. that it's kind of like cannot trying be to, written. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> like trying to write a novel of The Office. Because yeah. so much of The Office is Jim looking at the camera going, seriously? Yeah. And you can't really, unless like every time you put in like italicized seriously, <laughs> like that was that would fill the whole book. Anyway, so that's where but we that are. that wouldn't in... work out as well, because it's not as funny to read <laughs> seriously as it is to have Jim look at the camera. Yeah. Because I think on some level, too, that works, because there are a lot of moments in everyone's life where you wish that a documentary crew crew was following you around <laughs> so you could sarcastically look into the camera when people just don't get what you're trying to say, or when the situations around you are far too ridiculous to be actually happening. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's where we are on the Gabby Wells stuff. You know, I remember there was one movie that we watched that the first like minute and a half was amazing and we were really, really impressed. And then they started talking. Which was that? What was that one? It was a uh, beloved Christian film. Uh, yeah, actually, it was more than a minute. It was yeah, probably like 10 or 15. I mean, it went on. But it's really cool, low budget, but it had explosions and it was a period piece and had a castle. And so, I mean, it was really impressive. And then... And then they started talking. And then the acting happened. <laughs> You know, that's why really good action stars, especially in the 80s with like Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger, they were popular over the globe because they didn't talk much. You know, Arnold, you know, had a really thick accent, so it behooved him not to speak 
And um, Sylvester Stallone was not known for his acting chops either. And so they, the action uh, translates, you know, because there is no speaking. Everyone understands guns and explosions and good and evil and things like that. So, yeah. So unfortunately, that movie broke into to dialogue. And um, that was it. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that everyone understands guns and explosions and things like that, because there is going to be a robot battle in the future, a a real one between an American company and a Japanese company. The American company challenged the Japanese company. Oh, right, right. And this is a real thing. This is a real thing. I'm not making it up. All right, but we're not talking, but we have to clarify, we're not talking like epic robot battle. We're not talking like iRobot robot battle. We're talking about mano y mano robot battle. Yes, but still, it's it's real. <laughs> and basically, they had this machine, and the Americans are like, well, let's put guns on it and have a battle. Because <laughs> that's what Americans do. <laughs> and so they challenged, they created this video, and we'll have to put links into this in the show notes. Yeah, They challenged the Japanese company to a battle, and the Japanese company accepted, but the founder of that company was like, well, they added guns. It's very American. <laughs> But they weren't scared, so I guess we'll see what happens. What would Canadians do in that situation? Sit down. Um. (laughs) (laughs) They drive really slow. Well, stereotypically, Canadians are known for being very polite, so I just don't feel like they'd get into a robot gun battle. That's true. Although, that one Canadian police officer, when there was the shooting... Oh, yeah, right. He was really impressive. Up in the... Yes. Right, he was a hero. You could see him on camera, like, flying He was like John McClane. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah, he was a hero. Anyway, so... What are we talking about today, Dorothea? Uh, change in story like we did just now. Yes. <laughs> Shifting from Gabby Wells to robot battles, which yeah. I am so excited for. I was talking <laughs> More to my than friend. Gabby Wells. <laughs> I was talking to my friend. I'm like, what are the chances that we can get into this? Like, <laughs> see this personally? Like, like, let's go on vacation together and watch this. <laughs> I want the smell of the arena, the metal clanging, you know, the circuit boards frying. Well... Can I get on with the story topic? Yeah, let's change it up. <laughs> let's do something productive. What? Okay. So there's two shows that we have been following for almost since your inception. <laughs> no, not that since long. Since my inception? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not really. Um, well, neither one of the shows have been on that long. <laughs> I know. I was, I was exaggerating. I tend to do that. Well, if you had said since their inception, it would have been more realistic, although also inaccurate. <laughs> Can I go back now? Go ahead. All right. You're the writer. So <laughs> I will edit. Um, anyway, so two shows that we've talked about before plenty of times, and they've kind of gone through this kind of, they had to reimagine or rebirth themselves, NCIS and Castle. So NCIS has been on the longest. I think it's like its 12th season or something like that. I think it's, it's season 13, actually. It? It's, it's been on a long, long time. Which is awesome for the actors. Yeah, gosh, paycheck, right? It's like SVU. So as we've talked about before, with NCIS, they're able to kind of reinvent the wheel successfully because they, they change like spokes, like the characters. They'll pull one out and put another one in. And that new dynamic creates a certain rebirth. But Mark Harmon's character as Gibbs has always been the same. In the beginning of this season, they actually changed that up, and he had a certain amount of healing and that had been opened in his life. And so he came in after that as a very different sort of person, which I thought was interesting and so far, to me, has been successful. I would agree with that. I've always loved Gibbs, and I've always loved his character, but I also thought at times he could be very fairly stagnant. Yeah. 
And at some point you you look at broken people and it's really sad and you want healing for them. But some people, they can't move past some things that have happened in their life. And what happened to Gibbs is something that many people would not be able to move past. That's just a realistic situation. But if you're going to have a show on the air for 13 years, it's also not something you want to rehash every season. Right. And for those people unfamiliar, um, Gibbs is... um his wife and his daughter were murdered by someone. Um, and then he went and killed that person uh, and was never caught for it. So that sort of open wound and that vengeance and the lack of even um, closure that that vengeance, that act of vengeance, it didn't give him any closure or satisfaction. So, but they finally resolved that, which is good because how long can you really, I mean, in real life, it could last your whole life, right? Mm-hmm. But in TV life, that you know, 10 years, 11 years, whatever, the, yeah. that's a long time. Plots can't last that long. Only relationship back and forth can in right. the world of television because right. that's realistic. <laughs> you say sarcastically. <laughs> now, we've talked about also that one of our favorite shows, Castle, has been going through a bit of a change. We talked about before that the end of season seven, it's now beginning season eight. The end of season seven, they ended the show. They, it sounded like they ended <laughs> the show. I mean, Castle gives this kind of speech to all the cast and it sounded like the end because they weren't sure they were going to get the actors back. So they got the actors back, and but they had to to get the actors back, especially I think the woman Stana Kadik who plays Beckett. I think they had to make some adjustments because I don't think she was happy with where her character was going because her character basically, in that plot line as we've talked about, Beckett's mother was murdered, and so she spent her whole life as a police detective trying to find the root source of that of the crime organization responsible for her death. And by the end of season seven, she has. She's arrested everybody or killed everybody involved with it. There's closure and her and Castle are married and they're happy and she's on her way to being a senator or something like that, right? And I don't think she was really happy with that path for her care. There wasn't a lot for her to do anymore because she was driven by, by this compulsion. But what healed her in that was love, right? In the story, at one point, Beckett is going down a very dangerous path. Castle, they're they're in love, but they're not really speaking openly about their love, as they do in TV shows. And then Beckett puts herself in a really dangerous situation, and Castle refuses to go down that path because he knows it's self-destructive. And he's like, if you do this, you're on your own. Because if, if you can't stop because I love you, if my love's not enough, then it doesn't matter. She gets in a dangerous situation, she survives it, and she realizes, you know, he's right. The love is what matters. And then they did this season. Mm-hmm. Well, in this season, there is a crime that Beckett should not care about nearly as much as she does, for which she leaves her husband. <laughs> that is such a... That's not even an affair synopsis of that. <laughs> so, all right. So here's the deal. In- I think that's an accurate description. Honestly, her old team when she worked for the FBI was killed and it was this huge big thing and I respect that that was a really hard thing for her to go through but she was working with that team for like two months yeah and not eight years like she did with Javi and Ryan or married to the guy to anyone yeah so while I recognize that losing your team is hard I don't believe that losing a team that you haven't spoken to in like four years and who you only worked with two months when you've lost a lot of people, you're a cop. A lot of people have died on this show. I just I just don't buy that that's worth leaving your husband. Yeah. And so what ends up happening with this opening mystery for the eighth season is that Beckett finds out that the people behind killing her old 
well, it was actually attorney general team, not FBI, but that's a matter. The person behind that was actually in charge of the guy who she thought was in charge of her mother's death. So it reopens all these wounds. And because of the danger uh, that was put upon her in the first two episodes, trying to save a colleague. So what they basically had proposed is that her compulsion is stronger than her love for Castle or Castle's love for her. Which is true for some people. Right. So then she decides to pursue this compulsion of tracking down the person, the new person responsible for her mother's death without Castle. And so she basically leaves him. She's now a captain in the police squad, but she's working with this lone survivor from her attorney general group. And they're secretly working on trying to find who this ultimate bad guy is. Which I actually like that new character. Yeah. I, I, I think he's entertaining and I'm glad that he's on the show. I'm glad they're mixing it up in that way. But I just don't buy, I'm a character person, so I don't buy that character arc. And it's kind of frustrating for me because it's like one of those things, there's always going to be a bigger fish. If your best friend is murdered by a low-life drug dealer, well, you could get the person who killed them. And that's the person responsible. That's the person who killed them. But, you know, if they kill them because they were involved in the drug ring, there's a whole lot of people that are involved in a drug ring. And you're never going to be able to get all of them. And so I don't buy that she found someone semi-related to her mother's death, and that's what's so... I just don't buy that story. Yeah. So one of the things that happened during this transition from season seven to eight, and this does happen on television shows, is the showrunner change. Now, what the showrunner is, is basically the head writer, and they're the ones who kind of flesh out the entire story arc for that season or seasons. From seasons one to seven, Andrew Marlowe, who created the show, was the showrunner. And I don't think he's the showrunner anymore. I don't think so either. And if, if he is involved, it's not at a showrunner level. It's probably higher. I also know that Stan Akatic became a producer, which I think was one of her criteria for coming back on the show. And she also didn't want to be on every episode because she wanted time to do other things. So she won't be on every episode. But they have a new showrunner, which brought... Some of it was really good, I thought. there's It's a little darker edge. It's a little... I don't know, there's certainly a lot more gunplay in the first two episodes anyway. I like how they've involved Castle's daughter. Right. They've kind of set up a new situation for Castle that they kind of put into place in season seven, and they've kind of brought it to fruition in season eight. The thing here is that in order for this entire arc to work, you have to believe that Beckett would abandon the love of her life and go back into a very dark place because she's compelled to do so, leave her husband, who she just married, but still work in the city. And it's just it's just hard to believe. Well, and I think what they were trying to do as well was to reestablish the will-they-won't-they they tension because... Right. When you have a happily married couple, you don't have that tension that people love when they're watching the show. But the thing is, is that when they're a happily married couple, you can't establish will-they-won't-they tension because it already exists. There's nothing better that can come out of the relationship other than she comes home. And at some point, too, there have been plenty of shows that I've watched with characters who have this will-they-won't-they tension. I'm like, you need to stop with this and have some self-respect and not enter this very unhealthy relationship. And that's kind of where I'm at with Castle, because if it gets to a point where Beckett keeps leaving him whenever a new case pops up, whenever something new occurs in her life that she doesn't want to involve him in, and he's just forgiving of that, eventually I'm going to be like, well, you're being a doormat. And I recognize that you love her and that she changed your life and all that other stuff, but this isn't something to emulate. I agree with you. And one of the problems with the new tact they're taking is that it completely diffuses a very seminal moment in the character arcs. 
So that moment where they do finally connect, where she does realize that love is more important than her obsession, well, now that obviously doesn't matter, right? So now the obsession is more important, but we don't connect to that, right, most of us. And now the love is less important. So the love can't conquer the obsession again. Yeah. Because it already showed that it's a failure. And even the showrunners have said in interviews that they're trying to recreate that early tension that they had in the show. I will say that in, in the third or fourth episode, it's, it's, it's kind of fun, this little uh, give and take that they're doing. But I, I still don't really buy it. You know, to me, as I've said to you, it's, it's like bonus episodes, right? I don't think the show will last after this season. I think if you look at some of the, there's these charts on, online that show the popularity of, of each individual episode of certain series. And the series where she left Castle, the second episode of this season, was the lowest ranked of any episode in the whole series. Well, people didn't invest seven years to watch Beckett leave her husband. Right. Like they, they, For, so quickly. So quickly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was kind of like How I Met Your Mother. Let's spend an <laughs> right. entire season on a wedding and have them divorce in 10 minutes. Yeah. I mean, Beckett's motives are noble in the sense that she's doing it because she loves him and she doesn't want him to get injured while she follows this compulsion because the people are dangerous. But the, to me, even that, I I don't even buy that because the bad guys are going to know you're married to the guy, right? They're going to know. And Castle's not going to stop. Like, right. do you have any knowledge of your husband? But I mean, if you're a bad guy and you're going to go, well, we need to get to Beckett. Well, who does she care about? Well, she left her husband, so we won't bother him. No, she loved him, right? Of course, Castle's always going to be in jeopardy. It's just a false premise. It's creating entertaining shows, though, I'll say. But I just don't buy it. So yeah. like I said, to me, this is the series actually ended last year. And these are all just bonus episodes that I get to enjoy for fun. But I'm not nearly as invested in those characters because, as Hitchcock says, if a character makes the wrong decision, the audience invariably wishes ill will on them. It's like when you're watching a horror movie and you're always shouting, don't go in the closet. Well, you deserve to die. Right. <laughs> you went in the closet. <laughs> oh, you lost your head. Yeah. Oh, well, that happens when you go in a closet alone in a room where there's a maniac hunting yeah. you. Yeah. So <laughs> this is kind of that thing where you're like, okay, I don't agree with it. So I've kind of divested myself from the characters that I, I kind of enjoyed for the last seven years. But I am enjoying the interplay that, that those characters have. And it's interesting because I remember on NCIS, it's so fascinating how relationships are the reason people watch television shows. Right. They like plot, but they watch because they enjoy the characters and they enjoy the interplay between those characters. Ziva David was a very important character on NCIS. And the way they had her leave the show, because the actress was leaving, was just terrible. Right. And It, it was rushed. And was, unnecessarily so because the actress said, I'll come back for a couple of episodes to yeah. end this character's story correctly. And they're like, no, we'll just bang it out in one. It was two, actually. <laughs> but but in an interview, she said she was unhappy with the character's exit. And not only was the character important for her relationships with the other characters on the show, but she was the foundational plot point for several of the overarching stories right. throughout that show's duration. And the fact that they had such an out-of-character exit for her, suddenly she was going through this crisis that didn't really have any buildup. Yeah, it was almost like, oh, she's leaving? We have two episodes to kind of plant the seed and have it grow. And so I get totally what the Castle guys are doing. They're trying to re-energize this series by recapturing that magic that made the series successful in the first place. But it has to make sense. If you were to do this where, where Beckett left six episodes in, that may even be more believable, right? If you could kind of just buy that, you could see the compulsion eating away at her and maybe she was distancing herself from her husband. And, or if Castle got hurt. Right, or something like that. Or maybe he's in the hospital and that's where she says, listen, I'm out, right? And she uses that as an excuse. 
to your point, if they just would have said, all right, we're going to extend this over a couple more episodes, but you can't open a season and go, oh, this thing happens to a team that I barely spent any time with, and I save this one guy, and it reopens an old wound, and now I'm leaving my husband. It's like, what? What just happened? You know, one thing I'd be really interested with them exploring actually would be more tension between Alexis and Beckett over... Beckett leaving because Alexis never really took to Beckett as quickly as Castle did. She accepted Beckett and she likes Beckett a lot and she sees Beckett as family, but she's always been a little bit skeptical of Beckett. Right. And I think that it would be really interesting to explore the tension and damage with that too, because Beckett didn't just leave Castle. She left Alexis now as well. Right. And Alexis is Castle's daughter from a previous marriage. So that would have been great. Unfortunately, they've already missed that boat no, because they've already they're already a three or four episodes in, and she shows none of that tension. If they were to throw that in now, it'd have been like that should have happened episode one or two or three, whenever that hit her as a character. But all this is kind of just part of the storytelling arc, right? And and the best thing, as we talked about before, you you want to have a plan and you want to get there correctly. And if you if you have a sense that Ziva David's character is going to exit a show potentially the at the end of the season. The contract was up and they were negotiating with her for a really long time. So right. they should have at least planted right. That's what I'm contingency saying. seeds right. in that. Yeah, you should have had there where, listen, we're going to plant a seed of doubt in Ziva's path. I will say this. NCIS is really good about looking back 12 episodes or two, three or four seasons, finding one little moment and bringing that and making it something, right? They could have planted this seed and not used it, right? They could have planted a seed for her exit, had her renew her contract and not use it, and then have it come up later when she they needed to use it. But it was, seemed very rushed and, and anyway. so bad. And the, the unfortunate thing too is that she was actually very important to the plot of the following season. Right. Which again, just shows poor planning on the writer's part because I don't believe that the actress just randomly decided I'm not going to do this show anymore. She had to at least be considering it as her contract was coming up and they should have been discussing that with her because then the rest of the plot had to be reconstructed as well. Yeah. I mean, to me, if I'm a writer, a showrunner and a show like that where things, people can come and go all the time. You always have to have exit plans. One of the shows that I liked from a story perspective, not from a execution perspective, was the show Babylon 5. And one of the <laughs> things, I know, I tried to show it to you, but you you guys couldn't get past the first season, which most of us couldn't either. But what I liked about that, the writer, uh, Michael Straczynski, I believe is his name, he said that he knew that actors could leave at any moment. So he always had outs. When he created the whole universe... He had outs for every character at any moment. Like the main actor in the first season was replaced in the second season because he really was pretty awful, right? But that wasn't the plan. That character was supposed to go all the way. So, But he already had an, an alternate plan in case. So whether it's novel writing, which I'm doing, or television, you're asking people to invest in your characters. And you can't just betray them out of convenience or bad timing, you know? I don't know if I've talked about this on this podcast before, but... I watched How I Met Your Mother, and when the show ended, I was furious, not just because of the whole wedding thing, but because they set up a premise that the show was about how he met the mother. And <laughs> Really? Yeah. I think you're reading into that. And in the end, they killed off the mother so he could get back together with the girlfriend from the first season. Now, how many episodes, how many seasons was the show? Nine. How many episodes did they invest in finding the mother and then leaving the mother? I, I don't even know. It was... 
It was so frustrating because the writers had a plan when they started the show and they filmed it with the kids. And they I don't think they did. Filmed. I think they had a premise, but they didn't have a plan. No, they did have a plan because they filmed the, uh, the ending with the kids because the kids grew up. Then how could they screw that up so poorly? It's I don't know. It's They should have filmed multiple endings because the problem was is Ted really outgrew his relationship with Robin. They weren't a good couple. And what ended up happening in the last season is they regressed nine years of character development. The whole show isn't about Ted meeting the mother specifically. It's about becoming the man the mother loved. And it was about how he grew into the man who met the mother. And then they cast the mother and she was in the last season and she was adorable and she was really sweet and you were just starting to like really enjoy this story. And then they killed her off. And it was just so offensive because it didn't need to happen that way. I was so frustrated with that. I was just like, I'm rewriting the end to this. And so I did. And I posted it online and like thousands of people liked it because everyone was so offended by the fact that you had invested nine years in a show and in a love story that was not with Robin. And suddenly all of that went to waste. Yeah, I don't understand that at all. I will say, however, that one of my favorite things that How I Met Your Mother did was the relationship between Marshall and Lily. They were married almost the entirety of the show, and very few shows successfully have couples last. And I loved that they had a healthy relationship on that show. Because as we've talked about with Castle, most writers don't know how to do that. Right. And that's a weird thing, because Castle did it so well. Their relationship, as we've said numerous times on this podcast and others, is that that relationship was the most realistic growth of two TV characters into a a husband and wife situation. And Mm -hmm. then they just blew it up just... It's just so frustrating. So how this relates to Gabby Wells is that, you know, as we've talked about before, Gabby Wells was originally a movie trilogy character for a young adult movie trilogy. With a very different premise. (laughs) I know. I, you know, it's, it scares me a little bit. So because that movie trilogy is the last two books in the series in the movie trilogy, Gabby's world was relatively small. And so when this thing occurred, it could exist effectively and believably in this small world, right? Mm-hmm. But as I'm creating Gabby's life, you know, with these novels, and each novel has to take its own natural course, and you kind of let the story, you have a plan, right? You have a destination, but how you get there can can be a little different. And her world is going to be so much bigger. I mean, massively bigger than what I originally expected that I'm kind of a, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of like freaking out a little bit about how I'm going to pull that off because this little world uh, event, this, this, how do I say this? I can't give away the plot or anything, but this opportunity that crosses Gabby's path, suddenly with all the people in her life, a lot of them would be after that opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. And that's a very massively different story than I originally wrote. Although I think by the time Gabby gets to that point, she not that she's easily messed with now, she definitely won't be easily messed with when no. she's dealing with this opportunity. No. But it's this rebirth thing. I mean, we have a, a very specific plan after we decided to do this. And we've talked about the how we got here and how it went from five novels to nine. But it's still going to end... Well, it's either going to end at four or nine. That's my decision. As we talked about before, if not, there's not enough interest in it now, it'll just end at four. And if it never generates enough interest, I won't write the rest. Although I'd like to. But at the end of four, there's there's a happy enough place for Gabby to, for people who do invest in her to go, oh, okay, that was nice. Before things go horribly, horribly wrong <laughs> in her life. I will be upset if you don't finish the series. Uh, see, now you're going to make me write it. I am. Uh, yeah. I'm going to do that. All right. 
Well, okay. Dang it. So anyway, I still have to figure out how to get there successfully without betraying the characters that we have. But but what these people are doing, because in television, you just don't know how long your series is going to last. It's kind of like me getting through book nine and then going, oh, well, the publisher wants 10 more. And you're like, um, nope. prequels? <laughs> I don't know what to do. Well, there are some, and we've talked about this before, there are some shows that have been successful because they go out saying, no, this is this is right. how long the show is. The show is this many seasons. I really enjoy miniseries, whether they're on like Star or the BBC. I especially like BBC miniseries, actually, because they allow the show to continue if it's successful. Like, they'll create the series and be like, all right, this is done. But if fans are like, no, we want more, they'll be like, all right, well, what else can we do? You know, the ultimate in that is the Doctor Who series. If you want to talk about a show that has mastered, not always successfully, right, but mastered how to rebirth itself, how to recreate itself. It has to recreate itself. It's amazing. I mean, you get new showrunners, you get new companions, you get get new new doctors. doctors, Right. Yeah. It's like having a new castle every four years. It's one of the reasons that the show, I don't think, will ever really lose viewers because even if fans don't like a current doctor or right, if they don't like right. a current companion, they'll be like, oh, well, it's not going to last that long. Right. They'll be and gone in four or five gone. years anyway. And it's just, I love that show. It's amazing because I grew up and I that show was on our local PBS channel. Mm-hmm. And it was the 70s thing with the guy with the afro and like Tom a fedora Baker. or something. You saddened me that you know these things. I love that show. I know. And it saddens me he a little. He was one of the most popular doctors in classic Who. It, it was hard for me to accept Doctor Who when I was younger because I grew up with watching Star Trek, which, mm-hmm. which, which is awesome, which is pretty cool, especially story better than effects, obviously. And then Star Wars, right? So Star Wars changed everything. And then I go back and watch British television and British special effects, and they're horrendous. They're cheap. I mean, they were crap. And so it was really hard and for cheesy. me. And cheesy. And <laughs> cheesy. I mean, it was just really horrendous. But... I didn't invest enough time to appreciate the story, and I just couldn't get back. It just looks like something we'd make in high school. You know what I mean? It was that bad. You know, from the sets look crappy and the special effects But you have to keep in mind, were... too, it was a children's show. It was on Saturday mornings. It's very much not that anymore. No, But wow. it was yeah. a children's show. That, and they had no money. Like I Well, watched, that was obvious. That was my point. But I watched, if you look at one of the main nemesises of the Doctor, it's the Daleks, and they're basically like tubs with plungers and like a whisk like it's <laughs> <laughs> i know it looked like they have a plunger sticking out right it's a plunger it's like an r2d2 with a plunger it is a plunger and it's just awful they just but they had no money when they started the and show they talk and like this they do there's there was a whole thing about it at the 50th anniversary <laughs> but they didn't have a lot of money and when they created the show they're like oh this is actually kind of creepy and it's again it was a kid's show and it doesn't take a lot to impress children yeah but doctor who is just what they what they figured out is their secret sauce so the secret sauce of a time lord character in the form of doctor who with a human companion that we interact in that world with and evil opposing forces that can cross time and and everything and a little dark nature to it their stories are somewhat disturbing mm-hmm. and i remember there was one i got really into doctor who and you were saddened by that and then one day you were watching an episode <laughs> of doctor who and you're like huh this is actually kind of unsettling yeah it was really disturbing and i refused to tell you what happened so you have to watch it i know it's a two-parter. <laughs> so anyway what i'm impressed about them is that they figured that out and they don't mess with it too much they they can they can push the edges, you know, depending on the showrunner's tastes and focus. 
but they figured that out. It's almost impossible to recreate that outside of science fiction. Like I said, you can't have a, a new castle character. Now, NCIS kind of does this, when, like I said, when they bring a new a new person whenever an actor leaves. They're, they they kind of do it in a, in, a, in a way, but not nearly as dramatic or... I mean, it's a complete overhaul in Doctor Who like every couple of years, and yeah, it's still they successful. they redesigned the TARDIS. It's amazing. And everything. All right, so Rebirth, it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing to keep things going. And then there's some shows that stay on forever, like Bones, that we don't understand, that the popularity. Your, your, your expression is not translating to the microphone. Okay, enough said. <laughs> All right, so, Dorothea, this does remind me of a story, kind of about Rebirth. So oh, no. one of the things about Rebirth in, on stage is when things go oh, wrong. Oh, my gosh. See, you did it again. You did it again. When I was in college, my last year, I was doing the lighting for one of the summer shows. I was just on the light board, right? I didn't have anything to do with it except hit the buttons when the stage manager told me to. But a lot of my friends were in this play. It was called Something's Afoot. And it's basically a takeoff of these Agatha Christie stories, like the 10 Little Indians where people keep getting knocked off. Except that the twist in this play is that the actual building is killing everyone like the building's possessed and it's actually killing everyone (laughs) so at one point (laughs) at one point what ends up happening is this butler is walking down these stairs and this takes place in a hotel like a like a mansion hotel sort of deal and the butler's walking down the stairs and then the stairs there's a you know explode not like movie explode but on stage explode puff of smokes loud bang or whatever and that kills the actor playing the, the butler. Kills the butler. And that's the first person that dies. Everyone else is in this lobby and are on this chair lounge. And they're all sitting there and chatting. And then the butler's going to welcome them into the, to the building and uh, for the festivities to begin. And the stairs explode and he kills them. So that's what's supposed to happen. Now, what ended up happening was that everyone's sitting there talking. And about three pages too early, the stairs explode. so so what should happen if you're in a room react to that right yeah if you're in a room um your stairs should explode and you would go what the hell my stairs just exploded right just skip the dialogue y'all yeah you would just turn and so what these actors do which is also you don't know what to do it's not scripted right so they kind of looked at the stairs (laughs) that were billowing in smoke and then just turned back to each other and kept talking as if nothing went on. <laughs> now, the hard part was that everyone knew the butler had to die in three pages. Right? Now, the guy playing the butler wasn't the best actor in the world. Was he on stage when the stairs exploded? He's supposed to be, yes. He was right, on but this... when they actually exploded? No, he was backstage. Oh, okay. No, he could have done it then, right? Yeah. He could have died then. But he didn't. He wasn't on stage yet. So everyone's like, well, what the hell? How is this guy going to die? So the guy gets up in the top of the stairs and um, and we're like, oh no, (laughs) how is this going to play out? And the guy starts having a very slow heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) So there's like the left arm hurts and he's trying to do his lines and he's wincing and, uh, you know, and then he grabs his chest and then collapses. And so now the actors who had lines relating to stairs killing a guy have to explain to the audience what the hell just happened. <laughs> so what am I... Remember the story I told you about when the list... Remember the story about the list? Yeah. And my friend I, I met out in California, Jennifer, 
Who um, punched you? Who punched me? Mm-hmm. Right. She was on stage <laughs> at this moment, and she was a senior. And they all the other actors turned to her like with panic in their eyes, like lead us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> lead us through this this problem. And she just looked at him and went, "Nope." <laughs> that was her, that was her only ad libbed line was, "Nope." So they all just start ad-libbing. <laughs> like, my favorite ad-lib line in that moment was, I can't believe he died. He was, he was such a young man. <laughs> it's like, well, he's actually 19, but, but he's supposed to be 80. <laughs> so what they came up with... You got to imagine all the other actors were like, what, what we- are you doing? <laughs> Because now you have to contend with he's such a young man, (laughs) but who is dressed as an old man (laughs) and who had a heart attack. So what they ended up saying was was something like, "So I I guess what happened was that when the stairs exploded, now they now they're talking about the stairs. The stairs exploded. That must have he must have had a weak heart." And then when he, it finally got him, when he got on the stairs, and so we actually died from the stairs, killing him, we're back to where we were. And they were just all happy. And I was just crying. <laughs> it was so awesome. Oh, was See, great. what should have happened is they should have just cut whatever those pages were before the stairs exploded and react to the stairs exploding. Yes. And then, and then someone then runs somehow. someone runs off and runs back and goes, oh my gosh, the butler's dead. Yes, that's what should have happened. Right. Now, that's easy to say when you're not in that moment, right? And you're in front of people and the stairs just exploded. Again, but if the stairs just explode, I mean, because I've been on stage. And when you drop a plate, you don't just leave it there. You pick it up. And oh, when that's the, the stairs, worst when they leave it there. Because the, the audience, explode. that's all they look at. That's all they look at is this. They're not listening to you anymore. If anything is on a desk that falls onto the ground, if you're on stage... That's all people are going to look at until you pick it up. Yeah. Sorry. So anyway, if the stairs explode. You react to the stairs exploding. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that I would be that quick thinking to be like, oh my gosh, the butler's dead. But I would certainly be like, no, we're, we're done with this conversation yeah. now. And yeah, we're we'll introduce stairs. each other later. <laughs> These are stairs. Hey, Clara, who is the sister of my brother's friend, what do you think <laughs> happened when the stairs explode? Forthwith. Like- <laughs> Here's the other thing too. It was supposed they were all supposed to be British. Oh gosh! So right, so no, no. they're all, yeah. So no. they're, they're these young actors trying to be British and then ad libbing. No. Yeah, it was awesome. Now I knew that I was comfortable when I did acting and I was on stage. I knew I was really comfortable with it. Whenever anything went wrong, I actually looked forward to something going wrong like that. Not not stairs exploding, but little things, because I knew I was. I was totally in it when whatever happened on stage, I could address as if I were just in the in a room without an audience watching. You know, I could go pick it up, put it back, get into my spot, continue the conversation. I remember that happening um, with a play I was doing at the American stage. And I was like, man, this is awesome that I'm nothing can happen on stage that's going to fluster me. And that was great. That was like the, the most confident, comfortable feeling I ever had on stage. The interesting thing about acting, too, that I would explain to non-actors when they would ask me about it is getting into character. Because you're never completely in character, whether you're on a film set or on stage, because there's stuff you have to do to facilitate the show. Right. You have to make sure that you help with quick changes behind the scenes. You have to make sure that you're exiting and entering the right part of the stage. You have to make sure you're on your mark, that you're cheating out. There's yeah. a lot to cheating think about. Out. No, well, cheating out, for example, that's a good one, because I'm supposed to be, I don't know, a football coach, right, giving a speech to a team. But if my back is to the audience, they can't see my face. And the face is the only thing that expresses hardly anything that you can see on stage, especially the smaller stages. So 
you have the separation between the stage and the in the audience you need to be facing at least profile so they can see half of your face or better three quarters towards the audience even if you're talking behind you you have to be facing out so that they can see you and you make that work you make the fact that you're not looking at them at the people you're talking to a choice but that's what you're saying even if i'm in character i'm aware of where i am on stage i have to hit my mark because the lighting is set for that i have to be three quarters out unless i'm not supposed to so the audience can see me when people cross in front of each other they do this little dance thing and they twist and turn so that they're facing the right direction when they're done all that stuff is in your head when you're quote unquote in character. So you could be crying. Your character could be devastated, but you're still going to be thinking about, all right, I've got a quick change coming up in five minutes. I have to make sure I exit the right way because my costume's over here. It's one of those things where like, yes, I have sympathy for those people in that situation, but at the same time, pick up the plate. (laughs) Right, yeah. Acknowledge the stairs. They're billowing smoke. (laughs) Perhaps you should say something because you've never been in this building before. (laughs) Do these stairs always smoke like that, I wonder? Anyway. Someone could have screamed if they didn't know what to do. The stairs just exploded. Like, you have. I guess that happens here. (laughs) I wonder what's going to happen to the roof. It could probably catch on fire at any minute. Whatever. What were we talking about? There was one time that I was running the light board and I accidentally hit the cue to blackout. And so the lights started going out and the stage manager comes running over to fix the lights. But the funny thing is, is the actors, they were just going with it. They were on stage like, okay, and (laughs) we'll keep going. Like, but you know, that's what you just, you have to react to what happens because that's the nature of a live environment. You know, I was in a play and I was not good. Um, I was in a play. (laughs) Well, there's no evidence of that. (laughs) And Mr. Roberts for the Gainesville Community Playhouse. And this is before I did any plays in college itself, but it was in Gainesville. Anyway. They had this really old light board, and we were supposed to do 12 shows, right? And they extended one matinee. They made it an additional matinee. And so it was the 13th thing, which everyone's superstitious in theater anyway. So people weren't excited about it. We do it like no one's there. It's like, why the hell did we extend one show, right? The funny thing is, is that this wasn't the cleanest theater in the world, and there were roaches. <laughs> Apparently, according to the light board operator, the light board had one circuit that never worked. Okay, so they just knew not to patch any of the lighting through it. So during the 13th episode, a very large cockroach crawled into the board and actually connected that circuit. And all the lights went out. <laughs> like it actually shut down. They had to turn out the lights and then we all had to like evacuate the building. And um, that's hilarious. Yeah. So, but the guy said the funny thing is the only thing lit on that board was the dead circuit because the roach connected it somehow. <laughs> Uh, yeah, anyway, funny. Theater people are really superstitious. It's funny because growing up doing theater, I would always just say break a leg because that was tradition, not because I was superstitious about saying good luck, but right. that was just, that's tradition Yeah, theater. don't don't say good luck to theater people. Yeah, they'll freak out. Yeah. And it's like saying Macbeth in a theater. They Oof. will freak out yeah. on you. Yep. Don't do it. But I started saying break a leg to people in general, like when I was wishing them luck for anything. Like you have a speech, oh, break a leg. Oh, you have a test, oh, break a leg. And I, it didn't occur to me that other people had no idea what that meant. Yeah. You're wishing broken <laughs> limbs on me. I'm just going to the store. Because that's just how I said good luck, because I did theater. All right, um, so we're running out of time here. Dorothea, any recommendations? Well, in the spirit of rebirth and failing at it miserably and succeeding, um, there is, no, it does both. You'll understand. There was a theme park ride that was not very impressive, but was inspiring enough to have a movie based on it called Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes. And that movie is fantastic. And if you haven't seen it, I'd be surprised, but you definitely should. Awesome. 
So that is my recommendation because they recreated the theme park ride to uh, to be a, a movie, and then they created sequels, um, which are just awful. <laughs> <laughs> but they made a lot of money, and that's the important thing. Well, I ha- I watched the honest trailer for these other movies on YouTube. And the narrator says, the third movie, which just proves that Disney has absolutely no idea what made the first movie successful. <laughs> <laughs> My recommendation, you mentioned earlier, it doesn't have to do with rebirth, but it's so good about storytelling. And I really actually want to, we should talk about this movie more as far as story structure goes, but it's Mission Impossible 3. The first film directed by J.J. Abrams, which is interesting because he made a lot of TV shows. Anyway, so Mission Impossible's actual first feature film, which is kind of funny because he made a lot of TV. And now he's just taken over everyone's... Yeah. Everyone who grew up in the 80s, their childhood is now J.J. Abrams' playfield. I know, right? <laughs> I've taken over Star Trek, and now I'm taking over Star Wars. I mean, what the hell is he going to do? Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Star Wars. He's rebooted all of them. I know. If Envy was allowed in my faith, <laughs> I would indulge in it heavily. <laughs> anyway, Mission Impossible 3... Um, really amazing story structure every five minutes there's something so important that happens that in most movies it only happens at major plot points and in this movie something amazing happens every five minutes as far as plot goes it's really amazing and if you like that Mission Impossible world the first movie and the fourth movie are also good yeah second one no don't don't waste your time all right Dorothea another episode season two A.O. (laughs) A.O.? yeah it's Canadian (laughs) (laughs) is it really? Stereotypically, I'm sure. I'm I know. not. I'm not going to be welcome in Canada. I know how you love those Canadians. It's snowbird season again. Oh, I know. <laughs> it is. They're back. They come with the birds. <laughs> they come with the real birds. Look, if you want to come visit, that is lovely. Just please, just please, just just drive like a normal human being. All right. Well, you stew in your obvious uh, <laughs> hatred of Canadians. Of snowbirds. Okay, not all Canadians, just those who cross your path. Snowbirds. They can come from Vermont and New York, too. I was stuck behind a New Yorker the other day. So now you hate Americans? Are you hating Americans? Are you hating Americans? America. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll see you guys next time. Bye.